I'm Carlos Frias, and this is Sundial. Mark Potter's wife sent him out to photograph sunrises. She was certain she was saving his life. Meanwhile, he was trying to save hers. Judith was fighting ovarian cancer, and for three years, Mark was her primary caregiver. At the time, he was retired for more than 40 years as a hard news journalist. He covered some of the stories that made Miami what it is today. Retirement was supposed to be their time together, his and Judith's, a time to relax and travel. Cancer had other plans. In those dark stretches, there was sunlight. Judith Potter convinced her husband to take time for himself. His answer was to photograph the morning sun. He brought the photos back to her, and they would brighten her mood. His photography became a sort of therapy for both of them. After Judith died, Mark published the photos. His new book is titled Sunrise, A Photographic Journey of Comfort and Healing. The book features Mark's more stunning sunrise photography, taken at some of the most difficult moments of his life. It's more than a book of photography. It's part memoir, part biography, and all love story. Mark's with us today to talk about it. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Glad to be here. I, I think you should have written the book. That was a lovely introduction. Wow. <laughs> well, so much of it is taken I'm from... I'm very moved. Well, so much of it is taken from your own writing in the book because, you know, as we say, um, it, it is a beautiful and stunning uh, coffee table book. Even the cover of itself is this bright orange and, and flows of yellow and red. Uh, it is so much of a book, but there is so much in it with that introduction that you write... Uh, where there is biography in it, but there is also the story of the love story that led to this book, and it's it's really it, you. I was really taken with it. The uh, the book has uh, six chapters of photographs, but it's led by uh, an essay called "Sunrise for Judith," and it's not long; it's fourteen pages, but it tells the story behind the photos, and I think that that's what makes this different from most other photo books. Um, when friends of mine came to me originally with the idea of doing a book, mm -hmm. I rejected it. I thought, you know, I, I'm a hard news journalist. I covered narcos and all that kind of stuff. Cocaine the, cowboys. Yeah, all, all the stuff you're watching on Netflix now. And um, I, I didn't, I, I, as I said it, uh, I'm sorry I said it this way, but I did. I ain't doing no foo-foo photo book. And, uh, and uh, but then they persisted. Then they made it worse. They said, we want a coffee table book. I'm not doing a coffee table book. But then I started thinking about it, you know, and realized they want something. They're asking for something. And they say it helps them, these photos. So hmm. why not? Right. And that's how it began. But the one thing that I wanted to do to make it different was to show the photos, different parts of the day, but to also um, explain the story behind, because that really is, uh, that inspiration that you described in your introduction is what lives behind all of these photos. Well, I find that the book itself, it's almost like Judith was giving you the tools you needed to go on to keep right. living in the event that she did not, and she ended up she ended up passing. So tell us the story behind the foundation of the book, because it really started at a very difficult time for you. Because like we were saying, you know, you were a journalist for more than 40 years down here. You were ABC News. Um, but you be after retired, you became your wife's caregiver when she was when this cancer was diagnosed. Yeah, we had a, a really bad stroke of luck. It was awful. It was uh, 
I work for three national. I work for three local stations, mm-hmm. uh, two here in Miami, uh, channels seven and ten, and then also ABC, CNN, and NBC. Mm-hmm. And when I retired from NBC in 2016, we had the big plans that you were talking about. But a month after my retirement party, just a month after my retirement party, we got the catastrophic news oh, man. that she had uh, high stage ovarian cancer, and everything changed immediately. And we went into a hyperdrive to uh, get a good doctor. Um, and we went through the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Miami. And that became a three-year battle. Right. And those and, three years, I mean, if if you were going to be her partner as you had been you know, those years that you were married and as you were looking forward to retirement, you also were her partner and her primary caregiver absolutely. In, in those three years. Absolutely. It, it was my full-time job. I had plans to teach journalism. I had some plans to do other things. They went out the window. She had other plans also. And we just kind of let them go as we went full-time into cancer care. And it began to take a toll on me too, as it does all caregivers. I have a new respect for all caregivers realizing what they go through. I didn't fully understand that at the time. I do now. And it took a bit of, it took a toll on me emotionally, physically, in all ways. And uh, I was exhausted, I was depressed, I was anxious, I was afraid I was going to lose my life partner as I did. And that was stacking up on me. And she saw it. And she said, listen, if you're going to survive this, you you have to get out of the house Hmm. a little bit each day and do something other than cancer. You need to get away. Cancer was in the house. Yeah, we had a hospital room set up in the house, the machinery, the, the medicines, everything. You have to get away from that, she said. And she gave me a bit of an ultimatum. She said, uh, hmm. either go back to your light, you know, long years long passion of saltwater fly fishing, or go to, uh, pick up that camera that you bought right at the end of your time at NBC News that you were in this and go back to that new hobby that you had just started hmm. of shooting sunrises and that I had I put that camera down for a couple of years. I chose the latter option, the uh, photography, because I could do it near the house. Um, I wanted to be nearby. I wanted to be in phone range in case I got a bad phone call. Right. You Fortunately, were... that never happened, but I needed to be there. The fly fishing would have taken me too far out of pocket and in out of phone range even so that was the choice and i started doing that and every day i would i began a a a a a scheme that uh, i do still today i mean a A routine for your photography routine absolutely now you you were getting up early and going out yeah you were very honest in your book what led to it and and um you know in again an introduction that is you know as brief as this i mean it's 13 pages or so but you, you say just enough about the tolls that it was taking on you mentally. Right. Um, what, it, did you, do you look back on it and realize that you, you weren't aware of uh, kind of the, the lows that you had, you had come to? And that, no, that, I was fully that aware. Was seeing, that well, she was seeing it herself. No, I, I was fully aware. And um, she was too. And in the book, I, I have a line there. I said, I choose not to go into the details of uh, mm-hmm. all that I went through, or what she went through, the ravages sure. of ovarian cancer upon her. I tell enough, and you get the idea that it, was, it, was, it got bad for both of us. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to tell you, though, as soon as I started going out and shooting, being out in the sun, reconnecting with people, I started to improve very, very quickly. 
uh, it, that helped me incredibly to be able to do that. Uh, yeah, that's that's good advice. I think uh, is that is that a, a piece of advice that you take away for that you would share with other caregivers? About Absolutely. That? I am not a therapist. I'm I'm not qualified to give advice. I can tell you what worked for me, mm-hmm. and that what people tell me has worked for them with these photos. Um, what I learned is, you if you're going to go through something like this, if you're going to survive this as a caregiver, and then as a in my case a widower, mm-hmm. for now almost four years. You have to find a purpose. You have to find something. In my case, it became sunrise photography, and I literally do it every day, seven days a week. I'm still doing it. And now I've added sunrise photography. We've got the comet coming up here in a couple days. We're going to try to go get that. Uh, Wildlife photography spreading out beyond the park where I started. And the other thing that I learned, and I I want to stress, is that I made a a critical error during... um, uh, cancer caregiving in that I isolated. Uh, I kind of came within myself and just uh, with Judith and me, she was very private also, so that contributed to it. And I didn't get back with my friends. I wasn't answering phone calls. I got off Facebook and Instagram and all of that because I was just so focused on that. And that was a mistake hmm. that I realized when I started putting the photos. At first, the photos were just for me and for her. But then when I put them out on Facebook and then started an Instagram account and people started reacting to the photos, a big surprise to me, they actually like these things. And they started saying, we want more. They mm. make us feel better. Right. And then when that happened, a new connection began and I was no longer isolated. And that was the most curative thing of all. When I opened up, I opened that door that I had closed. I could have opened it a lot earlier and mm. I should have. And that was my mistake. And that's my advice to other people. Don't do that. People want to help you. They're out there. They want to help. Let them. Let It'll them. help you. What a, great, what, yeah. great, what a great piece of advice. Right. Talk to me a little bit about the ritual of how it began. So you go out in the mornings. <laughs> Tell me about that time in the morning, the things that you see, the people that you meet at the time when most of us are still asleep in bed. I can't imagine anybody sleeping through what I see every day, but they do it. You know, I'm about the, I'm, sometimes, you know, there's, what, three million people in this area, and I'm the only guy standing at the beach watching this sun come up, you know, like, like our ancestors used to do. You know, when the earth turns just right, the sun comes up, that, that you know, we're joining the ancestral chain now, you know. And um, it made you meditative and contemplative. It, it, absolutely. So the what I do is I get up in the morning, often before the alarm, which is around four o'clock, sometimes earlier. I mean, five o'clock. Sorry, excuse me. Sometimes earlier, depending on where I'm going. Put on a pot of coffee, look at my phone, listen to some music, figure out where I'm going to go, look at the weather and then hit the road. And that's really my favorite time of day out there on the road, driving to the location to what I call magic time. You're on the road to magic time. It could be the beach, Miami Beach. It could be the Everglades. It could be uh, the Keys, Matheson Hammock Park, where this all started. That's where it started for you. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right, because that's relatively near my home. And uh, I'm the, there are only a few drivers out there. I got the music going. You know, I'm thinking about where I'm going. It's, it's a great time of day. I look forward to it. I don't get enough sleep, and one of the reasons is I can't wait to wake up and get going again. <laughs> it's a funny, it's a funny problem. <laughs> Who do you meet in the mornings at that time? Is it usually just you out there? Do you, there are there are some characters that like or you are up at that time. Well, there are. Uh, I, unfortunately, I I see quite a few homeless people mm-hmm. out there, mm-hmm. uh, but I also see uh, other photographers 
many other, I'm not saying that I started this, uh, other people were doing it before me, but there are, uh, a group of photographers have joined together and we, we bump into each other out in these locations. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nice uh, group. And some of us call ourselves the Sunshine Boys, and uh, and uh, that's very nice to do. I have friends when I go to Miami Beach. There are the beach regulars now. I'm one of them, I guess. And they go by, and we talk, and we uh, we compare notes and uh, all of that. It's there's and then the Everglades. You see the Rangers. Uh, you you run into other people. I have a whole new group of friends now beyond what I had when I was in the news business where I had a lot of contacts and friends as well. I've got a whole new group now based on this, uh, this uh, sunshine photography, I call it, because it's sunrise and now sunset as well. And you kind of had to get out of your original uh, routine and begin this new routine with new people. What did, what did that do for you to be able to create this new friend circle, this new network as someone who was going home to dealing with these really literal life and death issue, issues? It helped to heal me. Yeah. It really did. It helped to heal me. And uh, and, and when, when people found out, people didn't know what I was going through until Judith passed, until she died in uh, 2019, because she had asked me not to say anything about it. And mm. I didn't right. publicly. And But when she died, I put out tributes and I explained the, the number one question that I got at all times. Why are you only shooting sunrises? You're a retiree. You idiot. Why don't you <laughs> shoot sunsets, go have a nice meal, shoot that, and then, you know, drink and go home. It, it's more civilized. The answer, of course, I, when I explained that, it was that uh, things changed. The answer is that that's the only time I had. I had to be done by 8 o'clock in the morning to come home to begin the 14-hour day of cancer care from 8 in the morning to 10 at night. Wow. And so that's when the last pills were given. I know that hour very well. You know, boom, boom, there was that's on the bottom of the list. And that's uh, what I had to, to get done by, I, I had to get done by 8 o'clock in order to do that. And when I explained that and what was going on, there was an explosion yeah. of interest. And people were like, oh my God, what? Yeah. They didn't know. It gave you this emotional fuel that you needed to Absolutely. deal with this heaviest part of your life. I cannot tell you uh, the debt that I have for everyone who came forward to help yeah. in ways they don't even understand. Because they were telling me, wow, these photos help us. They make us feel better. They, my northern friends in Michigan in the dead of winter, where I was raised, uh, would say, these make us feel warm. They warm us up. We love them. And, and, and I, they met it. I, I got that. But what they didn't know is what they were doing for me. Right. They didn't ha had no clue what that was doing for me. And what it was doing was healing me. Right. And that's a process still underway. But uh, it's a long, a long time from where it was. Did you, you would bring these back to Judith? And what, yeah. was, what was her reaction? Was she, was she always curious to see what you had shot that morning? Right. She was. But she was more curious to see the effect that going out was having on me. Mm. And she was pleased by that. Right. And I got to tell you, there was a quick turnaround. And in, in terms of my health, my how I felt by going out there, doing this, connecting, being in the sun, meeting the four people who were in the uh, three three people who were in the book, who helped me get started. I didn't know a thing about this, but they got me started. I'm not trained in photography. They taught me all, you know, this stuff. Uh, that uh, that had a huge difference. And so, fortunately, in the latter half of my cancer caregiving, I became 
the best caregiver I thought I could ever be and probably the best and, and a much better husband. I wow. really did. That turnaround had a huge impact on me. And it was because of the people that I was meeting and it was because of that warming sun and, and what it meant, what the sunrise meant, you know, and a new beginning, restoration, all of that, strength, warmth. And uh, it made, a, it made the, the difference that uh, changed my life and for the better led to this book. Did you shoot today? I absolutely did. Tell, tell us about your morning shoot. Well, I went out to Matheson Hammock Park, met a buddy of mine who used to work with me, uh, Lowell Thaler. He used to work with me at WPLG in 1981-83. Channel 10. Channel 10 in Miami. He was a director. I was a news guy chasing narcos and all that, smugglers and all that stuff. And he was back uh, pushing the buttons, putting us on the air. And we're still, we met today at the park. He came down from Palm Beach and we shot the sunrise. It was nice. And I have a shot that I took. I, I didn't publish it today. It's of a uh, a woman walking in front of the sun coming up, and you know the the caption begs. I mean, it's it's uh, walking on sunshine. And uh, but I I wanted to call her first to get her permission to use it. it. It's in silhouette. Only she and I know who it is. But I'm careful about that stuff. I hadn't gotten the phone call back from her yet. By the time I needed to post a photo in order to come here for the interview, so I I pulled one out of the archive from the same place from another from the other day and uh, so the one that I shot today will probably uh, uh, show up tomorrow Lowell said he shot a uh, took a photograph where he put his camera uh, looking at a scene he put darkening filters on it and he kept his camera open for six minutes I mean normally a a camera goes open you know in one one hundredth of a second Mm -hmm. that's normal one one sixtieth of a second he left it open for six minutes to get all the movement all and these to flatten little, out the waves, and I can't wait to see that photo. He was telling me about it. All these little details that you've yeah. learned. Mark, we're going to take a little break. We're speaking with Mark Potter. He's a photographer, longtime journalist, and author of a new book on sunrise photography and how it helped him heal after his wife's passing. Uh, we'll be back on Sundial in just a minute. back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and our guest today is Mark Potter, photographer, longtime journalist, and he's written this uh, new book, uh, published this new book of photography called Sunrise, A Photographic Journey of Comfort, Healing, and Inspiration. And Mark, this book, uh, we've been talking a lot about um, how it really, you know, helped, in a way it helped heal you in, in the time that you were caring for your wife, taking these sunrise photos. And I was wondering, would you read a little section of it? Because I think it really helps us understand where you where you were mentally and and what your the inspiration behind it? Of course, I'd be happy to. Thank you, Mark. Uh, this is from the uh, the chapter that that leads the book. It's called Sunrise for Judith, and it's talking about. Um, um, it starts off. It's a photo book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has many elements in it, but it's it's a photo book, and I talk about the photos and all of that. But then I start the explanation for why this occurred, and that's what makes this book different. So this is that paragraph that starts that turn into what was going on. I have experienced all of this now because of the inspirational woman at the center of my life, my wife and best friend Judith, who turned me into a chronicler of the morning sun. She did it in the firm belief that she was saving my life at the same time I was struggling to help save hers from the ravages of ovarian cancer. It is the unvarnished truth that all of my bright and colorful sunrise photographs began from extreme pain, fear, isolation, sadness, and loss. 
but his miracles will sometimes have it. And in a great surprise to me, the images actually turned out to be the exact opposite of the way they began. So many people tell me they find my photos to be upbeat and exciting or comforting and calming. Friends have also said the morning pictures are inspiring and give them hope, which moves me deeply and, of course, propels me to shoot even more of them. My clever wife clearly knew what she was doing. She certainly did. She tapped into that 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 interest that you had, and knew that that was a, a way that that, right. you, that you could develop wait, it. Wait, wait, I'll, I'll, I am stunned by the the response that I have gotten from people, and to this day, I'll get two or I, well on Facebook and Instagram, I get many messages a day. But personal messages come in all the time too. People buy the book and they'll send me a photograph of them with it, and I'm so moved by that. But one of the they'll tell me a story about how the book changed them and um, made them feel differently. And and when they tell me every time they tell me something like that, I will tell them. I say, well, you know, I thank you for telling me that. Telling me that by telling me that that you have just now made sure that I'm going to spend one more year. You've just bought one more year <laughs> of me standing out there in the dark alone waiting for that sun to come up. Yeah. It's worth it. It's really worth it. Tell us a little bit about this clever wife of yours who knew, who had this prescience to to get you down this journey. Tell us about uh, Judith Rodriguez, right? Judith Rodriguez is what uh, she was born and uh, had no middle name. So when we... Uh, in in Cuba, Cuba. Right. Okay. So... When we uh, were married, uh, she decided to have a middle name. Rodriguez became her middle name, not her hyphenated last name or anything like that. She was Judith R. Potter. She finally got yeah. one. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she was born in Havana in 1948. She uh, was raised in a small town between Havana and Cienfuegos okay. uh, called Los Palos. I, in my travels, actually went there and found the home. Uh, years later, wow, and uh, and photographed it and and brought pictures back and made my wife and her brother and her brother cry because they saw all these photos of the house they were raised in still the same as it was when they all left. Uh, the family there kept it perfectly, beautifully the way that they had left it. Um, she uh, grew up in. I went to school in uh, in Havana. But her father wanted her out of Cuba. Mm. The family was, you know, chafing under the rules and the deprivations of the Cuban Revolution. They and the the dad, who had been a political prisoner, not because he was politically active, but because he was a businessman who'd had everything taken and he resisted. Yeah, he was jailed for a while. He wanted his daughter out of there, so he sent her to the United States. She worked in agriculture uh, for some summers to get the credit to do that, and flew here legally and arrived in 1970, was processed right across the street from where we are at the Miami, at the Freedom Tower. At the Freedom Tower, sure, yep. just down, down the road. Down the road from us, and um, then went to Tampa, uh, lived with um, uh, aunt and uncle and cousin for a short while, working in a shrimp processing plant, learning English. That was not Judith. Such an immigrant story, though. Like yeah, you, Absolutely. You, you do what... what but ends what, up paying the bills. But know? what made hers a little more extraordinary is that she then decided to uh, to move on, and she moved in a big way. She went all the way. She drove to Los Angeles and got accepted to UCLA. Wow, she drove to Los Angeles. Yeah, and she ended up getting a, a degree in uh, literature and also uh, some medical training, and she worked in the emergency room at Kaiser Permanente, you know, patching up accident victims. 
um, dur- and became proudly an American citizen. Wow, what a what a varied what right. a varied life to that point. And, and it continues because uh, at some her father died while she was gone. She was not allowed to go back to Cuba. Right. She found out about it a couple weeks later because it took a while for the family to get a phone call out. And at that point, the family decided, you know, we don't want to be here anymore. We want to go to. So she began efforts to get her family out of Cuba through third countries at first. That didn't work. And then 1980 rolled around. The Mariel Boat Boat left. She heard about it and drove back all the way longer this time to Key West. From Los Angeles to Key West. Absolutely. To try to get her family back. And got a boat, got it hired onto a boat. And she and other Cubans went across the Florida Straits. And they worked in the Mariel Harbor to get her family out. The Cubans refused because her younger brother, Isaac, the one who worked with me so much in uh, in caring for her in later years, wow. um, had not yet served in the Cuban military. Oh. And because of that, they wouldn't let him out. They wouldn't let him out. The mother wouldn't go without him. And there was another brother. They were trying to figure out what he was going to do. The, ki- the Cubans kicked Judith out. And the American captain wanted to go anyway because the boat was running out of food, water, and the sanitation was getting bad. So she actually came back across the straits. Without her family. Without her family. And then had to drive all the way back to Los Angeles knowing that she had not gotten her family out. Wow. Days to think about this. But she also knew uh, something that nobody else knew, which was that she did have one ray of hope. And that on the har- at the harbor, she had met a Cuban official that she got to know, trusted, liked and trusted, and she gave him basically all the money she still had left and asked him to do the right thing. Wow. And he did. Wow. He honored the play. He gave, she gave him the mother's address. And in the middle, it's like a cinema noir scenario. The brother, my brother-in-law tells me this. They were, he and his mother were in there watching a movie in a darkened apartment. The, the lights go across the apartment. There's a pounding on the door. A man in a black coat and with a hat pulls him out, gets him in a car, and takes him away. Three days later, they're on a boat to Key West. Amazing. What He's, a caper. And, and, and so they get, they get to Key West. Uh, my wife's in Los Angeles thinking that she probably failed. But then the phone rings, and there's a, uh, a U.S. Navy sailor on the other end. says, are you the sister of this guy and the daughter of this woman? Yes, well. They're here. Come get them. Amazing. And as it turned out, at a different time, under a different method for dealing with immigrants, um, the family was moved to Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, to a camp there. Bill Clinton was governor at the time. And um, while sitting there, the mother and brother were looking down the row of tents and bebopping between the tents comes the second brother. (laughs) Oh, my God. He was on a second boat. So they were reunited. And the officials there said, well, now where would you like to go? I mean, it was different then. Right. And um, they said, well, let's go. Our sister's in Los Angeles. So they were flown to Los Angeles. Wow. But then the younger brother, Isaac, a musician, said, I want to. I want to go back to Miami. That's where all the Cuban music is. <laughs> so they come back to Miami. Judith h- hires on as a secretary at this place called ABC News. I joined there a year later. By then, she's the budget administrator, and we worked together for eight years as friends and uh, didn't think anything of it. Oh, so look, so you guys met later at the station. So tell us about in that meet. Tell us about that meet cute. In other words, how did you guys? Uh... <laughs> well, we 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 uh, we um, we flirtatiously fought. For eight years. Flirtatiously my, fought. Well, yeah. There's a lot in that sentence. I want well, to take a flirtatiously fought in eight years. Well, because uh, <laughs> I was I, I was in two other relationships at that time. But uh, she, um, 
was she was the one that was cracking down on my spending, and I was traveling all over the hemisphere spending. And uh, so, she, <laughs> but uh, she was she having come from her life and doing what she did, she understand she understood what we needed to do. Sometimes you had to make payments that you know, we're not on the books and you had to do things that, you know, cab, a lot of things became cab fare. You know, she could understand that. Right, right. But That's then, so uh, you know, they they shrank the bureau, wisely, they shrank the bureau one year before Hurricane Andrew hit Miami. Oh, boy. So we had to build it back up again. At that time, she had left, gone to New York. That's when we started dating and we were married in 1995. Oh, my goodness. So yeah. you were married how many years? 24. We were together 27, married 24. When she was budget administrator, she used to travel every month to the Central American war capitals, Tegucigalpa, Managua, San Salvador, and usually one other capital, Bogota, some other place, carrying the money to pay for the satellites and security and everything that ABC News needed. Wow, that took some guts. It, it, and it took $60,000 each trip, too. And the oh, way she did it God. was she wore a jumper that her mother had made with an extra large belly, and she put the, the cash in there and pretended to walk through custom. This is before 9-11. And walk through customs uh, here and there, uh, you know, with, with sort of a pregnant walk. The guards never could figure out how she stayed pregnant for two years, <laughs> but she did that, and she delivered the money. So yeah, she. I, I told her several times, you, you know, you got a lot of brains, but you got more guts than brains. Oh my God, yeah. So it, it just gives us the image of this woman yeah. that. Uh, that that at the same time that she's dealing with her illness is also thinking about you and and keeping you on your feet and her brothers and her brothers she was very very concerned about the welfare of her brothers and she told me as she was getting sick and said I don't want my brothers on the street and uh, I understood that yeah. and we took that that didn't happen yep but that was she was very very uh, dedicated to that not happening you know it I look back at that news career, and I realize what a similarity there is between what I, that and what I'm doing now. In it what takes way? the same skill set hmm. to photograph surreptitiously smugglers on the border as it does to anticipate the flight patterns of pelicans and know where to f properly stand to photograph crocodiles and alligators. It's very similar. The only difference is, you know, pelicans are honorable, and uh, there's not much pressure. If I miss the shot, only I know it. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell anybody, and I'm not going to get a rocket email from some kid half my age in New York giving me grief because I missed a shot on a border he's never been to. That would happen occasionally, and I would get a little upset about that. That's not happening now. It's very relaxed. It's, it's similar but different. So this thing that I'm doing now has been pretty good job replacement. A lot of guys leave a, an active job like I had and that you have, and they go into retirement. They don't know what to do. They're lost. I'm not lost. I just go look for another crocodile. <laughs> well, I want to talk to you more about that. Um, when we come back, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Uh, we've been speaking with Mark Potter. He's a photographer, longtime journalist, and author of a new book called Sunrise, A Photographic Journey of Comfort. We'll be back in a minute with Mark. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias with our guest, Mark Potter, photographer and longtime journalist uh, who's written a new book uh, about sunrises and uh, how it helped him grieve. But Mark, uh, we were talking about how these two things are similar. These skill sets are related. And your your career uh, was 40 years as a, as, as a journalist. It was 41 years, 41. but uh, 40 were in Miami. And that's those are the years that counted. I came to Miami in 1976, hmm. and I had a five-year plan. I was going to be here for five years, and then I was going to move, 
and I was going to go get one of those adult jobs like you're supposed to get in broadcasting. <laughs> you know, standing outside the White House and uh, like Sam Donaldson or whatever. And um, or I was, you know, a, a station in New York or Los Angeles. I was going to go aim for the big time. But then four years into my five year plan, 1980. The Mario Butliff. Hit Miami. Yeah. In the biggest way. And we had, that changed everything. Not only the Mario Butliff, we had four cataclysmic events in one year, in one town. We had the Mario Butliff, the Cocaine Cowboy War, the Haitian Exodus. They were come pouring out, thinking that they would be treated the same as the Cubans who were welcomed. They right. were not. Right. And unfortunately, many of them ended up dying on the beaches, and, and it was just a horrible exodus for them. And then we had the May 17, 1980 McDuffie riot. Yeah. Um, Infamous time for Miami. Absolutely. And all this was happening in one year. And Miami became known as one of the two best news towns in the world. Beirut, Lebanon, and Miami, Florida. Wow, and those are two big, <laughs> two very extreme names in one. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and it was very tough on the people leading the city and people living here. But for the journalists, it was, it was quite a, it was quite a, uh, an experience. And uh, at that point, I said, you know what, I don't want to go to Beirut. <laughs> I'm here, and uh, all the people from New York and Washington were coming here to cover the news because we had again, it's all the stuff that's on. Netflix now. Sure, sure. We were covering then, yeah, and we had the Ted Bundy trial with the, uh, the 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 uh, horrible shootout at uh, uh, Dadeland Mall, and all kinds of stuff were going on in that time frame. Right. Time Magazine labeled us, you know, Paradise yeah, Lost. lost. Yeah. But then Miami Vice came in and saved us. Right. That show saved Miami. There and, was some. I think we, there, there's been a lot written when the retrospective about Michael Mann talking about yeah. how they helped shape the image of Miami, and then Miami kind of responded to that image. It's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. I remember when when he came in and was uh, talking about doing this show. It was at the well, Miami was at its worst. You know, uh, the, we were the murder capital of the country. We all these horrible things were going on. And he was proposing to do a police show in Miami, and the city leaders were going, oh, my gosh, what? this is awful. What they didn't realize was, was that they were going to come in and stylize everything. Right. And so the narcos and the cops were wearing silk suits, <laughs> and the star of the show really was the city. Yeah. And they made the city look great, and they had that mantra, no earth tones. So there were no browns and, you know, yellows and all that. We had, it was magentas and aquas and gold, and... That would became the look of the show, which, as he was saying, Michael Mann, became the look of the city. Right. You know, life began to imitate art. And art imitated life, And if you life, yeah, drive exactly. down you, uh, uh, 95 or, or down Biscayne uh, Boulevard at night, you look around and you see all those colors. Yeah. But then, if you're me and you're out there at sun, sunrise or sunset, you see all those Miami Vice colors in nature. Mm. And maybe that's where they came from. So that's where it all began, as far as I'm concerned. And that's where the uh, Indian pottery comes from. Those colors, all those, those Miami Vice colors are in nature quite often. That combination of magenta and aqua is very common to see. Right. And this, it immediately became a new, big news town, and, and you came from a family of newsmen, right? Your father was in newspapers? My father was an, a newspaper editor, small papers, small town papers in uh, Sedalia, Missouri, where he started, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Tucson. And my grandfather, on my mother's side, was a printer. He printed the Columbia Missourian, which is the newspaper for the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Oh, wow. And uh, I ended up going to the University of Missouri 
And I remember uh, telling one of my history professors that my grandfather had been the printer, you know, decades ago. And he said, what was his name? I said, John Sullivan. He goes, Johnny, your grandfather. And so I was in. <laughs> you know, I was like, knew him on a first name basis. But I will tell you that my father counseled me against this job. Oh, is that right? Yeah. He, he, Why he, was that? Yeah. You know, you work, you have to work hard. Uh, phone calls in the middle of the night. The pay is terrible. I said, what do you mean? My first job, I was making $8,000 a year. What are you talking about? <laughs> Rolling in yeah, it. <laughs> and then I came to Miami, I was making twelve five, And I remember the the raise that I got at Channel 7. I went up to 15000 I bought a round for everybody at the El Toro Bar down on 79th Street. <laughs> it was a you know classy giant, and I had big money. I was going to spend it. How, how did you, um, you came back to photography, but it had been an interest of yours from the beginning. Two things. I I uh, I always liked hanging around the photographers. Mm. They were the cool kids. They were. They were at the scene all the they time. They were. They were up front. They were the cool kids. You know, I, I, I we reporters. We did our thing. We were just kind of dweebs. We were dealing with numbers and and. But the photographers. That was. They they were. I liked. I liked being around. That. I really liked those guys. I liked them a lot. And they were down to earth, and I still do. I admire them, and. Uh, and then later, Bernard Diederich, who was the uh, bureau chief for Time Magazine here during all of this, mm-hmm. came to me one day. He said, you know, you ought to carry a hip camera with you, a small little camera, wherever you go. Because Bernie would always carry a Canon Sure Shot, and so many pictures in Time Magazine came from that little Sure Shot. They weren't the best quality, but because Bernie was such an incredible journalist, he got to places like during the Grenada invasion and elsewhere that no one else could get to. And he had that little camera, and boom. He, he became published. It was a good lesson for young was, journalists, right? It, it, to was, have it was a good lesson. Sometimes you're the, you're the first eyes, first eyes and ears. Absolutely. And then I started dabbling with that. Um, I, uh, uh, always, I carried the hip camera, so I have a, a record of my career, which I, I'm glad about. I have a picture of me down in the tunnel that El Chapo dug to escape from that prison in Mexico. There I am, he, they used a, a motorcycle to, to go the mile, that they, that tunnel that they dug, and I'm, I'm down there leaning on the motorcycle. Someone had my camera and shot it with me. If I didn't have that camera, I wouldn't have gotten that. And so I, uh, I'm glad that I did that. And then later, at the end of my career, I decided that I wanted to sort of pursue photography as, as a hobby. And a couple of photographers at NBC told me that, listen, you need to buy a really good camera. Buy one that you can't operate. <laughs> uh, because if you buy something you can operate now, it's not good enough. Buy something above your capabilities. So I did. I bought a Canon 5D Mark, I guess it was a Mark Three, and uh, I showed it to them. I said, yeah, you're, you're too stupid for that. Uh, you'll be just fine. <laughs> so I learned how to do it and, uh, and have graduated up to another. Now there's a new style of uh, mirrorless cameras. I haven't gone that route yet. But that's how that began. The, uh, the guys at NBC helped me get started. There's this, this challenge to, to learn something new, really, Absolutely. ultimately, is what it is. I'm learning every day. And not only are you learning about photography, and I'm still learning that, believe me, um, you learn about nature. You learn about how to anticipate, you know, where they are. You learn how to handle things. For example, people always, I, I have these, a lot of close-up shots of alligators and crocodiles. And people always ask me, how close do you get? And I say, no, my mother, my mother didn't, didn't raise any fools. <laughs> That's why God invented the telephoto lens. Are you kidding me? But I have a reason for that. Right. I do stand back. In the par- National Park, alligators, they want you 15 feet away at least. And I, I honor that, not only for my own safety, but also I don't want to upset the, the animal. 
That's an ethical thing, especially if it's a female with babies. They get very edgy. So I stand back. That's respectful. But also, I know that if I make a mistake and I get too close and that alligator lunges at me, he's dead. Yeah. Not me. Right. If the rangers find out that that happened, they, they, they're compelled yeah. to take him out. I, I could never live with being responsible for that. These are all things that you started to learn as you started to right. photograph uh, those, and, and it all started with those sunsets. I right. mean, those sunrises. Yeah, so, it, it moved out. <laughs> yeah, so tell me how that has evolved now in the years since your wife has passed and she and she steered you into this uh, hobby, which is now a, you know, a, a, almost like, uh, well, I mean, it's it's almost like a professional, I mean, it's a professional career. You published well, a book, with, you know. When, when I get my first uh, check, check. I, I haven't had one yet. <laughs> I guess I'll be a professional. That's know? right. I used to joke, I, I couldn't even spell professional. Now I are one. Um <laughs> It's uh, it's moved along. I, I I photograph many other topics now. What you interests know? you now? What interests you to shoot now? I, you know, it's funny. I still love the sunrises. Mm. I like the sunsets too. That you're working in reverse with the sunset. Oh, uh, with the sunrise. Well, with the sunrise, all the beautiful colors come before the sun comes up. That's that's the end, typically. Uh, with the sunset, it's the exact opposite. As the sun goes down and disappears, then the colors come up. So you're working in reverse, different times. You begin times to of lose them. You begin yeah. to lose them. But I, I like the anticipation of uh, of a wildlife doing that, and the solitude of being out there with them, or and um, I, I, many different environments that I go to now, many different places. I have friends who do shoot. They do urban shooting. They do cityscapes. I've steered away from that because I had 41 years of that as a journalist in all kinds of environments, rough and and otherwise. Uh, but I, I like being outdoors in the natural environment. So I've stayed with that and I publish every day. And the, the, the response that I still get from people just stuns me sometimes. What things that people say, how it makes them feel. I gave this to my mother. She broke down. I, one of the biggest surprises is the response from men. I kind of thought maybe because of my old fashioned way of thinking, my age, that this would be more a book more attractive to women, maybe freer feeling and expressing their emotions and dealing with them. I don't know. That's maybe an old-fashioned thought now, but I had it, and then I started getting responses from men. I mean, oh. tough old guys, Vietnam veterans, telling me that this book kind of gave them permission to feel the way they feel and to maybe get up and do something about it. So I do have a friend that... A Vietnam vet who uh, lost his wife and a good friend of mine, and he's now out shooting. Wow! Because of he 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 saw my photos. He saw that there was a piece on this book that was done by the Today Show National. He saw that, and he um uh, then he bought the book and he called me. I almost fell down. I really <laughs> this hobby of yours it continues to heal. Yeah, yeah. You have this really. Well, that's, that's what I took my pain and I recognized it, and I know that. That other, I used to say sometimes naively, you have no idea what I'm going through. I stopped saying that. Everybody knows what you're going through eventually. Yeah. Buddy Guy, the blues great in Chicago, says, if in your life you haven't had the blues, keep living. Keep living. Yeah. And so everybody is going through something. And uh, so the book is, it's a love story, as you said. It's a huge thank you note. And it's a big hug yeah. for anybody who could use it. Yeah. And who is that? 
Everybody. Everybody. Yeah. There's this really lovely note from uh, Carl Heisen uh, that yeah. he, he, he offered a, a, a blurb for the back of the book. Right. Uh, wh- um, can you t- talk to me about that, about that? Yeah, I was so impressed that uh, that Carl did that. Um, he and I started our careers the same time in Miami. In ni- I think he started in 1976 also. Yeah, I mean, obviously for folks who might not know, Carl Hyacinth is, you know, one of the one of the great commentators great. on Florida culture, life, uh, environment, and snark. Yeah, and we are so fortunate to have had him. And I know you interviewed his uh, his, his partner in crime, uh, uh, Dave Barry. With Dave Barry as well. Also, and and Carl, uh, you know, he knows tragedy. Sadly, he lost his brother in the in the shooting, a mass shooting at a newspaper in the Northeast, and uh, at the Capital City Gazette. His, yeah, uh, his brother. That's right. His brother was a newsman there, and he right, was uh, shot and right. killed. Right. Someone came into the news. So Carl's uh, message on the back is quite uh, quite heartfelt, and uh, I was very moved that he did it. Would you I, read- and I went through. I, I'll be I, if you're asking me to read, I'll be happy to. Yeah. But I'll tell the story. Um, the go-between on that was the uh, the famed and uh, irrepressible photographer Tim Chapman. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, Tim. Uh, Tim's a he's a special guy, very close friend with Carl Hyacinth, and I've been friends with him for a long time, and. Uh, I went to to Carl. I went to um, to Tim to get to Carl, and and that's and then Carl uh, came back to me, and we've been back and forth. And he wrote this very lovely, uh, as he calls it, a blurb. It's a lot more than a blurb, or if it's a blurb, it's a blurb with a capital B. He wrote the heartrending story behind Mark Potter's marvelous photographs, gives them a healing and hope-filled force. This book is more than a memorial to his remarkable wife. It lights a path forward for everyone who has experienced the darkest weight of grief, and it reminds us to cherish every sunrise. When I read that to the publisher, she gasped. <laughs> yeah. he, told you, he told you something very prescient, too, about, about needing to, do, to, do, to keep yourself right. occupied, right? Right. He said, uh, well, he said it was, in our conversation at one point, he said it was just very fortunate that he and I had things to do after after our tragedies and uh that's my my mantra again with uh, anybody if you go through this uh don't isolate and 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 please you know try to find at when your time comes try to find a purpose it'll help you as a, and 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 if you're helping others at the same time you know all all the better when i read that when i read that quote from carl hyacin to the publisher i said and that is why he is Carl Hyacinth, and you and I are nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what do you what do you want to do next, real briefly, before we wrap up? What do you, what do you want? What Everybody you keeps asking next? me about well, what are you going to do for book two? And I thought, oh no, I'm having, you know, book two, uh, book one where you know we're trying to get another printing and and all of that. That's been a lot of work. I'm not. I don't know about that. I I, I continue to do what I'm doing. Maybe I'm going to start figuring out a way to make the uh, photographs available through sale. Um, I want to. I'm not interested in big galleries or anything like that. I want to get them out there so people can have them and enjoy them at a reasonable rate. The people who want these photos and in some cases might need these kind of photos are probably not rolling in the dough because they're spending their money on medical stuff and all that. So I'm going to try to figure out a way to get them out. And, you know, I've got photos hanging on walls all over the country. And I haven't made a penny yet uh, because I'm a terrible <laughs> well, businessman. Well, you can actually find the book yeah. at Books and Books, and you can follow Mark on Instagram at Mark Potter Miami altogether. Uh, Mark Potter, he's a photographer, longtime journalist, 
and author of the new book, Sunrise, A Photographic Journey of Comfort, Healing, and Inspiration. Mark, thank you so much for thank making Thank you. I really enjoyed today. it. You made it easy. And that's Sundial for Tuesday, January 31st. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Matea Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor, and our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Lessons from Abuelo. It's a new children's book authored by Cuban-American scholar Andy Gomez. He tells us about the inspiration behind the book, his grandkids. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Public Media.